The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 1, 4-9. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago, Carrie and I had the privilege of going to my niece's Christmas concert. So let me just be honest with you for just a second. Here's what happened. She sang in a choir that sang the first two songs. Then she sat down. And for the next 57 minutes, I got to listen to various groups, including a junior high band filled with people I didn't know. It was a delight. As I was sitting there listening to the junior high band, tortured sounds of the junior high band, it actually reminded me of the years I spent in a junior high band and how we would start every band period by playing scales. And this was intended to to help us get better. it was painful, and it didn't seem to get better throughout the year, but that was the intention, is that we would go over these, these scales, and maybe then when we had a performance, we wouldn't be terrible. But these were the basics that we had to master. Then I was in a high school band, and we would do the same thing, just maybe a little bit better than we did when I was in junior high. Why? Because if you want to be good at anything, you've got to master the basics, right? And part of mastering them is you do them over and over even when I've coached sports, this is why you'd start the practices the same way, like practice after practice, by working on these basic fundamentals until they were mastered and you, and you could do them without making any mistakes. I think it's important for us as a church periodically to return to the basics. And this morning, I want us just to think about the basics of our mission. What is it that Jesus has called us to do? So to answer this question and a few other related ones, we're going to look at the first chapter of the book of Acts. So Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Now, we're familiar with sequels. We all probably watch sequels. And the difference between a good sequel and a bad sequel doesn't have anything to do with the cinematography or the actors. It has everything to do with the story. So what happens sometimes is there's a really good story. They make a movie of it. It's a great movie. makes a lot of money. And so somebody says, let's make a sequel. And here's the problem. The story's done. And so so they try to figure out a way to come up with another story, and often that's when a sequel's bad. But but a a good sequel is when they tell part of the story, it doesn't wrap up completely, and so there's more of the story to be told. And that's what Acts is. Acts is a really good sequel because there's more of the story of Jesus to be told. Look at verse 1. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. This is Luke writing. And he's talking about his first book, which was the Gospel of Luke. He says, about all that Jesus 
began to do and teach. So in the Gospel of Luke, this was the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. Here in Acts, it's the continuing of what Jesus did and taught. Now sometimes this is called the Acts of the Apostles, which I think is a, is a bad name. It's the Acts of Jesus done through his apostles. This is the continuing story of Jesus. You see, the mission of Jesus didn't end when he died. That's what often happens. You have a, a leader who's, who sort of gathers followers, he accomplishes something, and then when he dies, it may outlast him by a generation or two, but, but sort of over time it fails. That wasn't the case with Jesus, and for the simple reason that when he died, he didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the dead. And this is where this begins in verse 3. Luke is saying, listen, after Jesus suffered, in other words, after his death, he, he also presented himself alive to all of these people by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, there are people skeptical about the truth of Christianity. Maybe you're skeptical as well. And so what we have in the record of Christianity is that Jesus made multiple appearances to multiple people after his death. And multiple people wrote down these accounts and passed them down to others. And they believed them to such an extent that they were willing to forsake gold and glory and die to uphold and defend that which they had seen. And so there's there's great proof of what Jesus accomplished. So Jesus since he rose from the dead, is still at work today. And this is what the Acts is telling us. That the mission Jesus began isn't over. It's unfinished. That Jesus, when he returned, he turned to, before he returned to heaven, he turned to his disciples and he said, listen, here's the mission. I'm entrusting it for, to you to continue. And they have done that to us as well. And so when you think of the book of Acts, what you should be thinking about is this is how the disciples of Jesus who received his mission, how they worked it out. And that's why it's a pattern for us to work out the same mission we've been entrusted. So I want to answer five questions about the mission of Jesus from this chapter. First of all, what is our mission? What is our mission? A few years ago, Carrie came home from Costco with some flashlights. Now, this was interesting because you never go to Costco and simply get what's on your list, right? There's just too many interesting things there. So you're like, I went there to get cheese, and I came back with a battery-operated trash can. I didn't realize I needed one, but it was there, and it was pretty amazing, so I brought it back. Like, that's what happens, at least to us, when we go to Costco. Well, she came back with flashlights. In this case, we did need them, because for the longest time, we had one flashlight, which means we could never find it if we ever needed it. Like, it was, it was somewhere in somebody's room, hidden underneath somebody's bed. That it was sort of a cheap Flashlight that had been dropped a number of times, and so the, the battery cover no longer stayed on it, and so we tried to tape it, but then when the batteries would be changed, the tape would get loose, and so if you could find the, the flashlight, you would hope it had batteries in it, and then you'd have to hold it in like a very specific way to try to get it turned on, so she realized it was time to upgrade, and so she came home with a two-pack, because it's Costco. You can't buy a single one of anything. She came home with a two-pack of like sturdy flashlights. And she showed them to me. It was like, good, maybe we'll actually have one now when we need one. And, and she showed me this feature these flashlights had where the end of it can be twisted. You twist it one way and it's sort of, the beam sort of is diffused a little bit and it goes a little wider. It's not as bright. You twist it another way and it's, it narrows and it gets really, really bright. This is what we see about the mission Jesus gives his disciples. He, he gives them a mission that's, that's very, very narrow. It's very intense. It's, it's very specific. It's not 
really broad. It's very, very narrow. And here it is. He says in verse 1a, he says, you will be my witnesses. There it is. Like there's the mission. There's this laser-like focus. You're a witness about Jesus. You've got a message to tell people about Jesus. You talk about Jesus. This sort of becomes a mantra for the early Christians. Chapter 2, Peter stands up to preach and he says, we are all witnesses. Chapter 3, he's preaching in the temple and he says, Jesus was raised from the dead by God and to this we are all witnesses. Chapter 10, verse 39, he's sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and he says, and we are witnesses of all that he did. The Apostle Paul gives his testimony in Acts 22. He says that God had called him to be a witness for him. So in 2007, Nike launched a, an ad campaign about LeBron James. In fact, there's sort of a, a famous picture that was in downtown Cleveland. They'd sometimes show it before and after basketball games, but it was a picture of LeBron James with his arms spread out and this little slogan that said, we are all witnesses. And so here's the implication, right? You're going to see something so incredible that you'll have to tell other people about it. Listen, brothers and sisters, we've seen something much greater than a basketball player. We are witnesses to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to how he takes lives and he changes them, how he breaks the patterns of sin, how he redeems and restores relationships. And so we must not be silent about this. I remember a few years ago, Jared and Whitney, some of our overseas partners, were, were here with us. And Jared said something. They were, they were preparing at that time to go over to the Middle East. They've since, the Lord has redirected them to the Far East. But he said that his goal there in the Middle East was that within 10 minutes of talking to anyone, that they knew he was a follower of Jesus. Right? That's being a witness. It's saying, I, I know something so great, I cannot not talk about it. I mean, we are witnesses to the greatest truth in human history the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to tell others. I just want you to imagine for a second what would happen if we all did that in Fuquay. I mean, yes, as Don mentioned, our town is growing. It's growing tremendously, but it's not mammoth. If this room, this church, just simply said, everyone we meet, we're going to let them know we follow Jesus. What impact might that make here? In fact, being a witness, it's so integral to what it means to be a Christian that when they, when they went to replace Judas with a new apostle, they said, here's the main requirement. He's got to have witnessed everything Jesus did. I wonder when I look around at sort of churches in general, even our church, if we've forgotten that this is our mission. Many Christians, I think, they, they sort of live with these diffused lives. We do generally good things fairly moral lives. We, you know, we, we try our best. We're friendly. We're kind. We, we do this. But, but our lives aren't focused on pointing others to Jesus, on shining the light on Jesus. Many churches, I think, are like a group of adults that have gathered to celebrate a birthday party. And they've eaten cake and ice cream. They've blown out candles. They've given presents. And they never realized that the birthday boy wasn't there. Christianity is all about Christ. Have we forgotten that the focus of what we do is Jesus? So since Acts is a sequel, 
We need to interpret chapter 1 in light of the end of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke 24, in that chapter, Jesus rises from the dead, then he gathers his disciples and begins to teach them. And twice in Luke 24, it says he opened up the Scriptures and he showed them how it all pointed to him. In fact, that's, they got this to the point, to the extent that here in chapter 1, they've got to replace Judas. And, and what they say is, we shouldn't have been surprised about his betrayal because this was predicted in the Old Testament. They're starting to see everything through the lens of Jesus. So, so if the Scripture is all about Jesus and our mission is focused on Jesus, how do we go through life not talking about Jesus? So here it is, our mission is simple. We are to be witnesses to the greatness of God displayed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation it secures for his people. Like, we, we are supposed to turn and twist our lives until there's this spotlight put on Jesus, that it radiates from us the spotlight on Jesus. And here, here's what that means very practically, okay? That every single circumstance God puts you in is an opportunity for you to point someone to Jesus. Like, like there's, there's no circumstance you will face in this new year where there is not an opportunity for you in that circumstance to witness about Jesus. In fact, I think we could go even a step further. There is not a circumstance you'll face in this new year where the point of that circumstance as a Christian is for you to point people to Jesus. Now, this requires effort on our part. I love what the angels say to the apostles. So there they are. You can just sort of picture them, right? They're just sort of standing there because Jesus just rose from the ground and just kept ascending on clouds into heaven. So, like, they're doing what you'd expect. They're sort of standing there looking up. And then there's an angel there, and you can sort of see the angel looking at them, looking up, looking at them, finally says, okay, guys, like, what are you doing? Didn't, I mean, he told you what to do, right? You're supposed to go out and start telling other people, why are you still, he asked, the angel asked, why are you still standing here? Like, get going. Get moving. And I think Jesus is telling us the same thing. Like, what? it's great that you were gathered here. Why are we still here? Like, get going. Get moving. Talk to people. Tell them about me. Here's the second question. Not just what is our mission, but who is on mission? And here's the simple answer. It's the church. This becomes the dominant theme throughout the book of Acts. We see it starting here in verse 14, is that the church starts to gather. It says they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Jesus doesn't call individual disciples and say, this is your mission, and this is your mission. He, he tells them that I'm gathering you into these local assemblies called churches, and I'm giving you this mission. Isn't this wonderful? Like we're not on our own? It's not like, hey, you've got this mission, everyone else, you're good. No, he's like, help each other do this. And so this is what we see them doing. They gather together. They're united in one spirit. They're praying that Jesus will work in them and give them boldness and clarity together to, to talk to others about him. You see, it's the mission of Jesus that engages the church. And so without this mission, what you see is a church is stuck in neutral. So until it died last week, one of our cars was a stick shift. It was a five-speed, right? So I don't, I don't know if you know how to drive one of those, but it has an extra pedal, which is really confusing to people who've never done that before. There's an extra pedal, 
And what you've got to do is you've got to push in the clutch, let off the gas, you've got to shift it into gear, and then you reverse the process. And every time you want to shift, you have to do this like back and forth. And what happens is if, is if you don't get that clutch in all the way, you don't get it into gear, and it makes this grinding noise, right? You grind it till you find it, they say. Like, it makes this loud noise, but it doesn't make a difference at that point how much gas you give it. It's not going anywhere. Right? Unless it's actually in gear, you can, you can accelerate, and you'll hear the engine revving, and you'll hear noise, but it, the car's not moving. I think this is us as a church, right? Our momentum as a church is tied to whether or not we're engaged in the mission of God. So we can make a lot of noise, stuck in neutral. But if we're going to accomplish anything, we've got to engage in this mission he's given us. In the moment we disengage, we start to die, just like a car. <coughs> if it's not in gear, right, it's not going anywhere. Now, it may sort of coast for a while. Maybe it coasts for another few feet or another mile or another year or another decade, but eventually it dies. It stops. It doesn't go anywhere. The minute a church forgets its mission, it takes a first step towards extinction. So this is one of the reasons we have these weekly members moments. Last year we talked about who's your one. The reason is because we, we want you to hear testimonies. <coughs> Excuse me. Why don't you hear testimonies of those in your midst, in your church, who are engaging people with the gospel? Uh, what I love is... There are times in the seasons in, seasons in our church where we have a long list, and it's like, who's next? And I'll be honest, there are times when there's not much of a list. We need to engage in the mission of God. The mission is the engine, <coughs> excuse me, which drives our life together. We don't ever want to coast, right? We don't want to be a church that coasts. Like, I want personally to be accelerating when Jesus calls me home, and that's what I want for you too. That's like, they were going fast, when Jesus took them. So here's what happens is you have the disciples, they're gathering as the church, they're following Jesus together. They've got to make a decision. They're meeting together, they make a decision. So what do they do? It says in verse 14, they pray. And then verse 16, they start studying the word. This is the pattern we find throughout scripture. Here's the church gathers, they study the word, they pray together. And then in this case, they cast lots. Now we first read that and it's like, that seems silly seems superstitious. Wouldn't it be weird if we're like, hey, where should we build our building? And you guys all gathered around and we were like, ah, oh, Wagstaff Road. Like, like we don't, that seems odd to us, but actually you see this prescribed in the Old Testament as a way to make a decision. That you pray, you, you gather together, you pray, and then you cast lots to help you determine God's will. Now here's what's interesting. We don't ever see it again in Scripture after this point. You know Why? Because something happens in chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit descends upon his people. They no longer cast lots to make decisions. They gather, they read his word, they pray, and then they listen to the Spirit speaking to them. Now one final note about the church. In verse 14, they're described as being in one accord and united together. The same description of the church occurs 12 times in the book of Acts. So think about what happens in the book of Acts. You have the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in, in ways that seem so extremely fast. I mean, they're, po- they're not a big group of people, but yet by the end, the, the gospel's spreading all over, and the main way they're described is unified. What's that teach us? 
that a unified church becomes this powerful force for the spread of the gospel where a church that's filled with division and disunity makes little impact. If you've ever run a three-legged race, you understand how important it is to be unified, right? So if you're unified, you and your partner, you can, you can really run fast. If you're not unified, you fall flat on your face. Now imagine not two people with legs tied together, but 200 or 2,000. Like how much more important is unified, is unity? If you're, if you're a unified church, you can take these great strides and you can cover distance and you can spread the message of Jesus. But if you're disunified, like you're going to not accomplish anything. You're not going anywhere. You're falling flat on your face. Now this is a, a question. Are we unified? That can't be answered collectively. It's a, it's, a, it's a question to all of us, but it has to be answered individually. Are we unified? And the way we answer is by each one of us saying, well, am I living in unity? Which means, one, is there anyone I have conflict with that needs to be resolved? For, me, for us to all be, in un, be unified, each one of us has to say, if there's conflict, I've got to deal with it. I'm going to take the humility, forgiveness. I've got to, I've got to deal with that. But secondly... A lack of conflict does not bring unity. You actually have to be engaged. Right? The person who's not part of the three-legged race, who's standing over there by himself, isn't unified, even though there's no conflict. Right? They're not engaged. So part of being unified is everyone engaged together in this mission. A lack of unity kills a church's reputation and impact in a community. I mean, we've all seen this, haven't we? Don't we all know churches that fight and squabble? Everyone wants their own way. And the reality is they're not. The only impact they're making in the community is a negative impact. Like, are you in conflict? Are you engaged with others? This is what it means to be unified. Listen, we exist as a church. Redeemer Community Church exists to fulfill the unfinished mission of our unstoppable Lord. But the only way we do that is together. Question three, where does our mission take us? So in verse six, the disciples ask Jesus about the kingdom, but they restrict the mission to Israel. In other words, they don't get it, which is actually comforting. Right? Have, you, have you ever not gotten something? And you're like, why can't I figure this out? Maybe you've read a verse over and over and over, and then somebody says something, and you're like, how did I never see that before? And sometimes you can be frustrated by that. Here are the disciples. They just spent 40 days in seminary with Jesus. We can be pretty sure the teaching was top-notch. And they're like, they ask a question, and the first question's like, they don't get it. It's like earlier where Jesus does these wonderful miracles, and they start arguing on the way after the miracles about who's the greatest, right? They don't get it. Like, we're in good company when it takes us a while. But they restricted the nation, like Israel. When's this going to be for Israel, for us? And Jesus, that's when he says in verse 8, like, no, 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 no. Like this gospel's going, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, sort of where we live, Judea and Samaria as it sort of stretched out, and finally it says all the way to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is an outline for the book of Acts. So as the disciples obey his command, in, verses, in chapters 1 through 7 they go to Jerusalem, in chapters 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria, and then 13 through the end is really the rest of the earth. This is the marching orders of an army that starts in the capital city and files out intent on accomplishing the king's mission. This has always been God's intent for his people to reach the nations. 
Here's what he said in Isaiah 49, verse 6. This was a command to the nation of Israel. He said, It is too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, if all of this was about simply about bringing salvation to one small nation in the Middle East, that is way too small. You are thinking way too small thoughts about me and my purposes, God says. I'll make you as a light for the nations, for everyone, that my salvation may reach to the very end of the earth. So Jesus and his followers do what Israel failed to do, a light for the nations. This is why we talk about the gospel going across the world. This is why even this morning we're praying for places, for workers and for churches and other places that the gospel will go forward there. This is why the gates are living in the Balkans. And we're about to, with tears, send the Nelsons to join them. We're not trying to get rid of either of those families. We like them. We're going to miss them. But we we understand the gospel going forward is more important than them staying with us. This is why we partner with with Emmanuel Baptist in Moldova and Bally Collin in Dublin. It's so, how can we help the gospel go forward? This is why we're sending the Wagners and the Kitchens and the Vogels to Concord. Again, those are some people we like. They're not troublemakers that are being kicked out. We're, we're willing to say goodbye, to send them with support and prayer and gifts and anything else we can do so the gospel will be established there. My hope is that a year from now, some of you won't be sitting here and you won't have left because you didn't like something. But you'll have left because you're like, God is calling us to take the gospel somewhere else. Or you're preparing, you're sitting here, but you're preparing to go out with the next church plant. Or you're testifying about the opportunity you had to go serve that church that we partner with over there for a period of time. This is why we do it. The gospel cannot be contained to one area. When I think about Redeemer's history, it's some of these moments where we see God stirring our hearts for the gospel impact in other places that are my favorite moments. One of them happened just a few years ago. I remember I just returned from visiting with Emmanuel Baptist in Moldova, and they were, we went to a small village not too far away, and they were talking about how they wanted to plant a church in that village, and there was this piece of land right on the intersection of the village, or the main intersection across from the Orthodox church that was perfect. And they were hoping that maybe they could buy that piece of land to put the church right there where no one could miss it. So I remember coming back and telling you about it, and then in the one sermon, in the sermon that Sunday, I said, let's buy it for them. And the next day, someone walked into the church office, one of the members here, with a checkbook and said, how much will it cost? And wrote out a check to buy it for them. And then others sent emails that week. How much do we need? (laughs) None. It's taken care of. Like, these are the best moments. Why? Because we see this is where God is shaping our hearts after his, that we are being a light to the nations, taking the gospel We see in the book of Acts what happens is the gospel goes forward and it's like a stone that's thrown into a pond, right? It lands and you have a ripple and the ripple and it just keeps rippling further and further. Listen, I want you to know this, that God has thrown you into the pond of your neighborhood so it ripples. The gospel ripples further and further. You thought you bought that house because it was a good deal. Wrong. You're a Christian. That's not why you bought that house. You bought that house because God wants you to impact that neighborhood with the gospel. God has thrown you like a stone into the pond of your office, 
your company, your business, so that gospel goes forward. And so you think you took that job because it had a good pay. No. Well, maybe you did. But God had a bigger purpose. He's like, the gospel's got to go forward here. So I put one of my people, one of my disciples, one of my followers here to be a witness. But maybe you're in the other situation where you, you've been wanting to make a change. You've been wanting to relocate. You've been wanting to have a different job. And no matter, everything seems to be going okay. And then some weird, you know, there's been some weird turn. And that job you thought you'd have, you're not going to have now. And you're like, why in the world? And here's the answer. God's not done with you where you're at. Sometimes we overcomplicate this. My God, everything was lining up and then this weird thing happened. And does it ever accrue to us? Yes, because God wasn't done with you. Like you've got gospel impact still to make where you're at. God has you exactly where you are so that you can make gospel ripples in your neighborhood, in your job, in your community, until those ripples reach the ends of the earth. Question four. When does our mission end? So Jesus spends 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom. They don't get it. They ask, Lord, when is this happening for Israel? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's going everywhere. It's bigger than Israel. It's spreading from Jerusalem to the very corners of the globe. He's reminding us here that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is far greater than any ethnic or nationalistic kingdom. That the kingdom has begun in the hearts of those who love Jesus, confess him as Lord, and it spreads until people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worship him as king of kings. But then this. At that point, he's coming back just like he went up. Right? And, and then he institutes this never-ending kingdom where there'll be no more sin or suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more night. So the book of Acts, what it is, is it chronicles the spreading kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it, I love this. It, it shows how the kingdom spreads through grace, not violence. I mean, throughout human history, how do kingdoms spread? Soldiers, on horses, or in tanks with swords or with cannons, like forcing people to join this kingdom. And as we just sang a few minutes ago, like our battle cry is love. And with the sword, we make the wounded whole. The kingdom of Jesus spreads in a, in a way unlike any kingdoms. But always with an eye to the future. And this is what we must never forget. We spread this kingdom awaiting the return of the king. Like this is when it ends, when the king comes back and, and the future's always in mind as the church gathers and takes the gospel that one day the king returns. You even get a hint of it here where you ask, why did they replace Judas? Because in chapter 12, James will die. They don't replace him as an apostle. Why replace Judas? And here's why, because Jesus had told them in Luke 12 that they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, he's saying that there is a new people of God and you stand as the patriarchs of it. So, so what it's showing us is this international people of God that are going to be gathered and it'll keep going until all have become part of God's people. Then the king returns. This actually helps us understand the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts doesn't have an ending. Okay, so here's how it ends. Mid-story. Paul's in prison in Rome And here are the final two verses. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. 
and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Like, what happens to Paul? He's in prison. It says he's there for two years. Like, don't we want to know what's next? There are two ways to get out of prison. They're much different. One way is with your head. One way is without your head. What, which one, what happens to Paul? It, it just sort of ends abruptly. Here's why. Because it doesn't end. It's saying the same story of the followers of Jesus taking the gospel of Jesus to the nations isn't over. Like what happens to Paul doesn't matter because Paul has raised up Timothy and Titus and Silas and so many others who will raise up others who will raise up others. And the mission doesn't end with Paul. It doesn't end with this early church. It continues until Jesus comes back. Final question. How do we accomplish our mission? So Jesus tells his apostles, he says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise. He says in verse 4, he says, you've heard me speak about this. John baptized with water. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So he says, listen, it's not time to go yet. You're about to go, but it's not time to go yet. Wait here, because without the Holy Spirit, you're powerless to do this. In other words, if, if one of the disciples had heard Jesus say, okay, here's your mission, you're going to go and be witnesses in all these places, the angels are like, why are you, why are you standing here looking up? And they're like, okay, I'm going. And they, they run into the next town, which says like they would have failed. Because they weren't quite ready to go yet. It reminds me of a, a scene like in hundreds of different movies and TV shows where the rookie cop goes to the sketchy-looking warehouse. He calls it in, and the, you know, the person on the other end of the radio says, Wait there until reinforcements arrive. And what does the rookie cop do? Ignores it. He goes in. At some point, he's bonked on the head, and they find him unconscious there. Like, every, like it's happened a thousand times, right? And, and we're watching it, and we know what's going to happen. Like, don't go in there till backup gets there. Of course, it's a movie. It's a TV show. Of course, he's going to do it. But this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Like, I've, I'm giving you this mission, but I got backup coming. And this backup is far greater and far more powerful than you even realize. He says the Holy Spirit's coming to baptize you. Now the word baptism means immersion. And so you have two senses here. One is which that the, the Holy Spirit like immerses them, controls them, comes upon them. And the other thing is identity, which is part of baptism. He gives them this new identity as witnesses, as disciples of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit will consume them and give them a power to follow Jesus' instruction. And we see this in the book of Acts, right? Very next chapter, you have Peter who gets up, and he has had no education, and all of a sudden he starts preaching, and everyone's like, whoa, like, when did he go to school? Like, how's he talking like that? In fact, even more crazy, there are people there who don't speak that language. They're hearing him in their own language. How does this happen? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. I want you to see this. The power we receive from the Holy Spirit is tied to our mission from God. So in verse 7, it talks about the Father's authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the power from the Spirit is for the purpose of fulfilling the mission of God. Like Jesus doesn't promise power for you to do what you want. He promises power to do what God commands. What God commands, he empowers. What he commands, he empowers. He commands us to be witnesses, and so he empowers us to obey. 
Now we're reminded here that the power of Christianity is not political, but spiritual. And normally when we think of a powerful kingdom or some sort of important mission, we think politics, right? We picture kings and presidents, rulers with armies, making laws and extending their reign. But that is not how the kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of Jesus Christ spreads from heart to heart as the gospel is received and the good news is proclaimed. Okay, so this is what happens to us if we're being honest. We get frustrated with a politician. We get frustrated with a broken judicial system, right? Corruption, crooked decisions. And here's what we go. Like, we wish we are in position to change it. I mean, what would happen for the gospel if some of us became judges and some of us became politicians? What would happen if the president was a Christian? What would... That's not our hope. It's not a new president. It's not a better Supreme Court. I mean, the gospel spreads here under Roman rule. We got it pretty good compared to Rome. What's happening to Christians in the Roman rule? I don't know. They're being killed. They're being banished from Rome for a period of time, and yet the gospel doesn't stop. Our hope is not political power. We have all the power we need to accomplish the mission Jesus gives us. The mightiest army pales in comparison to the might of the Holy Spirit. The strongest king is a mere shadow of the strength of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, here's what this means. The Holy Spirit of God has taken residence in you, which means you have access to more power than the power plant up the street. You have sufficient power for anything and everything God tells you to do. You may feel weak and helpless, but you're not weak and helpless as a Christian. Like Christians should never look at a command from Jesus and think, I just can't do that. I'm not, I'm not wired that way. Ah, that's impossible. Do you realize what you're doing when you say that? I know you've said to do it, God, but you haven't given me the ability. I know you've told me to do it, God, but you don't love me or care for me enough to give me the strength to do it. That may seem humble when we say, well, I'm just not gifted to do that thing God's called me to do. That's not humble. That's a shot at God. Because what God commands, he empowers. Whatever the king commands you to do, he empowers you to do through his spirit. So for years, I had the same cordless drill. It was a cheap black and decker. I got so frustrated with that thing. Like the batteries were pretty much worthless. You'd go to do something and you'd start screwing in the screws and they like go halfway in and the thing would die or like it would bind up. It was just, it was so frustrating. It doesn't feel like I could get any job done because of this stupid drill. And so I bought a new drill and it had power. And it was the first time I used it. It was just this, it was a, almost a spiritual experience as I held that trigger down and like, like that screw, it went, I mean, it went so far and I had to back it out a little bit like that. It was so much power, right? But it was, there was this level of frustration when I didn't have the power to do what I needed to do. So here we are, brothers and sisters. We've been given this job that Jesus has called us, his church, to be his witnesses. And he says, keep talking about me, keep telling other people about me until you've told everyone in every corner of the globe. 
and, and sometimes if we're being honest, we say like, I, do, I don't think I can do this or I try and I fail or whatever. And we say all these things and we forget who it is that gave us this job. It's the one who hung in our place, who took all of our sins upon himself, who in his righteousness took our sins so that we and our sin could be righteous, who was laid in a grave with a cold, dead heart, And three days later, the heart began to beat. And the blood began to flow, and he steps up out of the grave. And he's the one who says, I will empower you. Not only that, he then says, I'm going to send my spirit to live inside you. So it's not an external source of power. It's internal, always with you to the end of the age. So, brothers and sisters, here's the reality. We can succeed. We have the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. We have the Spirit of God with us at all times. And we have 2,000 years of history that shows us that the kingdom of Jesus Christ advances through the witness of ordinary Christians, which is great news because that's who we are. We're ordinary Christians. We struggle, we fail, we love Jesus poorly, we love each other not that well either. Ordinary Christians, but God uses ordinary Christians. So, I think we need to listen to what the angels said to those first disciples. Why are we still standing around? What are we waiting for? God has placed you where he placed you to do the job he's called you to do. Let's be faithful to his mission. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'll help us to have a burden this year to share the gospel with people, simply to talk to others about what we've experienced, which is the grace of Jesus Christ. This isn't something we need a course in. This isn't something that we're going to have to figure out on our own, something we have to manufacture. We, if we know you, if we believe if we have been saved and brought from death to life, we have all the experience we need. And we have the power through your Holy Spirit residing in us simply to tell others. So God, give us a burden to share the truth of the gospel with others, to be witnesses to those around us. May we be burdened for our neighborhoods and our community and our co-workers and those around us that you have placed sort of in our orbit May we, may we be faithful to share the gospel. Empower us through that we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.